Chapter Twenty Three of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Death of the Countess. In the night, while Gilbert was vainly trying to save Andrea, the commune, unable to secure Danton's help, formed a committee of vigilance, including Marat, though he was not a member of the commune. But his name enthroned murder and showed the frightful development of his power. The first order of this committee was to have twenty-four prisoners removed from the abbey, and brought before them at the mayor's offices, now the police prefecture building. It was expected that they would be set upon in the streets, and the butchery there begun would be introduced into the prisons. Marat's barkers, as they were called, in vain, however, shouted as the hacks went along, look at the traitors the accomplices of the prussians there they go who are surrendering our towns slaying our wives and babes and will do it here if you leave them in the rear when you march to the border but as danton said massacres are a scarce bird and the incitement only brought out more uproar fortune came to the ruffians assistance at a crossing was a stage run up for the voluntary enlistments the cabs had to stop. A man pushed through the escort and plunged his sword several times inside a carriage, drawing it out dripping with blood. A prisoner had a cane. In trying to parry the steel, he struck one of the guards. "'Why, you brigands!' said the struck man. "'We are protecting you, and you strike us. Lay on, friends!' Twenty scoundrels who only waited for the call sprung out of the throng armed with knives tied to poles in the way of spears and stabbed through the carriage windows the screams arose from inside the conveyances and the blood trickled out and left a track on the roadway blood calls for blood and the massacre commenced which was to last four days it was regularized by maillard who wanted to have every act done in legal style his registry exists where his clear, steady handwriting is perfectly calm and legible in the two notes and the signature, executed by the judgment of the people, or acquitted by the people, and Maillard. The latter note appears forty-three times, so that he saved that number. After the 4th of September he disappeared, swallowed up in the sea of blood. Meanwhile he presided over the court, he had set up a table and called for a blank book. He chose a jury, or rather assistant judges, to the number of twelve, who sat six on either side of him. He called out the prisoner's name from a register, while the turnkeys went for the person he stated the case, and looked for a decision from his associates as soon as the accused appeared. If condemned, he said, "'To La Force,' which seemed to mean the prison of that name." but the grim pun understood was that he was to be handed over to brute force beyond the outer door the wretch fell under the blows of the butchers if the prisoner was absolved the black phantom rose laid his hands on the person's head and said put him out and the prisoner was freed when maillard arrived at the abbey prison a man also in black who was waiting by the wall stepped forward to meet him on the first words exchanged between them, 
Maillard recognized this man and bowed his tall figure to him in condescension, if not submission. He brought him into the prison, and when the tribunal was arranged, he said, "'Stand you there, and when the person comes out in whom you are interested, make me a sign.' The man rested his elbow against the wall and stood mute, attentive, and motionless as when outside. It was Honor Gilbert, who had sworn that he would not let Andrea die, and was still trying to fulfill his oath. Between four and six in the morning, the judges and butchers took a rest, and at six had breakfast. At half-past the horrid work was resumed. In that interval, such of the prisoners as could see the slaughter out of a window reported by which mode death came swiftest and with the least suffering. They concluded it was by a stab to the heart. Thereupon, some took turn after turn with a pocket-knife to cheat the slaughterers. In the midst of this dreadful antechamber of death, one woman in deep mourning was kneeling in prayer and smiling. It was the Countess of Charny. Two hours had yet passed before she was called as Citizeness Andrea of Tavernay, previously known as the Countess of Charny. At the name Gilbert felt his legs yield under him and his heart weaken. A life more important than his own was to be debated, tried, and doomed or spared. "'Citizens,' said Maillard, "'the person about to appear before you is a poor woman, who was devoted formerly to the Austrian, but with truly royal ingratitude she paid her with sorrow.' To that friendship she gave all, her property, and her husband. You will see her come in, dressed in mourning, which she owes to the prisoner in the temple. Citizens, I ask you for the life of this woman. The bench of judges nodded, but one said the prisoner ought to appear before them. Then look, said the chief. The door opening they saw in the corridor depths a woman clad wholly in black, with her head crowned with a black veil, who walked forward alone, without support, with a steady step. She seemed an apparition from another world, at the sight of which even those justices shuddered. Arriving at the table, she lifted her veil. Never had beauty less disputable, but none more pale met the eyes of men. It was a goddess in marble. All eyes were fixed upon her while Gilbert panted. Citizen, she addressed Maillard in a voice as sweet as firm. You are the president? Yes, citizeness, replied the judge, startled at his being questioned. I am the Countess of Charny, wife of the Count of that house, killed on the infamous 10th of August, an aristocrat and the bosom friend of the Queen. I have deserved death, and I come to seek it. The judges uttered a cry of surprise, and Gilbert turned pale and shrunk as far as he could back into the angle by the door to escape Andrea's gaze. "'Citizens,' said Maillard, who saw the doctor's plight, "'this creature has gone mad through the death of her husband. Let us pity her.' and let her senses have a chance to come back. The justice of the people does not fall on the insane. 
he rose and was going to lay his hands on andrea's head as he did when he pronounced those innocent but she pushed aside his hand i have my full reason she said and if you want to pardon any one let it be one who craves it and merits it but not i who deserve it not and reject it maillard turned to gilbert and saw that he was wringing his clasped hands this woman is plainly mad he said put her out he waved his hand to a member of the court who shoved the countess toward the door of safety innocent he called out let her go out they who had the weapons ready parted before andrea lowered them unto this image of mourning but after having gone ten paces and while gilbert clinging to the window bars saw her going forth she stopped god save the king she cried long live the queen and shame on the tenth of august gilbert uttered a shriek and darted out into the yard for he had seen a sword glitter and swift as a lightning flash the blade disappeared in andrea's bosom he arrived in time to catch her in his arms and as she turned on him her dying gaze she recognized him i told you that i would die in spite of you she muttered love sebastian for both of us she added in a barely intelligible voice and still more faintly continued you will have me laid to rest by him next my george my husband for time everlasting and she expired gilbert raised her up in his arms while fifty blood-smeared hands menaced him all at once but maillard appeared behind him and said as he spread his hands over his head make way for the true citizen gilbert carrying out the body of a poor crazed woman slain by mistake they stepped aside and carrying the corpse of andrea the man who had first loved her even to committing crime to triumph over her passed amid the murderers without one thinking of barring the way so sovereign was maillard's words over the multitude end of chapter twenty three recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter twenty four of the countess of charny by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain the royal martyr let us return to the sombre edifice confining a king become mere man a queen still a queen a maid who would be a martyr and two poor children innocent from age if not by birth the king was in the temple not the temple tower but the palace of the knights templars which had been used by artois as a pleasure resort the assembly had not haggled about his keep but awarded a handsome sum for the table of one who was a hearty eater like all the bourbons not only did the judges reprimand him for his untimely gluttony during his trial but they had a note made of the fact to be on record to our times in the temple he had three servants and thirteen attendants connected with the table 
Each day's dinner was composed of four entrees, six varieties of roast meat, four fancy dishes, three kinds of stews, three dishes of fruit, and Bordeaux, Madeira, and Malvoisie wine. He and his son alone drank wine, as the queen and the princesses used water. On the material side he had nothing to complain of, but he lacked air, exercise, sunshine, and shady trees. Habituated by hunting in the royal forest to glade and covert, he had to content himself with a green yard where a few withered trees scattered prematurely blighted leaves on four parterres of yellow grass. Every day at four, the royal family were walked out here, as if they were so many head of stall-fed cattle. This was mean, unkind, ferocious in its cruelty, but less cruel and ferocious than the cells of the Pope's dungeons, where they had tried to drive Cogliostro to death, or the Leeds of Venice, or the Spielberg dungeons. We are not excusing the commune and not excusing kings. We are bound to say that the temple was a retaliation, terrible and fatal, but clumsy, for it was making a prosecution a persecution and a criminal a martyr. What did they look like now? Those whom we have seen in their glory. The king with his weak eyes, flabby cheeks, hanging lips, and heavy, carefully poised step seemed like a good farmer upset by a great disaster. His melancholy was that of an agriculturalist whose barn had been burnt by lightning or his field swept by a cyclone. The queen's attitude was as usual, stiff, proud, and dreadfully irritating. Marie Antoinette had inspired love of grandeur in her time. In her decline, she inspired devotion, but never pity. That springs from sympathy, and she was never one for fellow-feeling. The guardian angel of the family was Princess Elizabeth, in her white dress, symbol of her purity of body and soul. Her fair hair was the handsomer from the disuse of powder. The Princess Royal, notwithstanding the charm of youth, little interested anyone. A thorough Austrian, like her mother, her look had already the scorn and arrogance of vultures and royal races. The little Dauphin was more winning from his sickly white complexion and golden hair, but his eye was a hard raw blue, with an expression at times older than his age. He understood things too well, caught the idea from a glance of his mother's eye, and showed politic cunning which sometimes wrung tears from those who tormented him. The commune were cruel and imprudent. They changed the watchers daily and sent spies under the guise of town officers. These went in sworn enemies to the king, and came out enemies to the death of Marie Antoinette, but almost all pitying the king, sorrowing for his children and glorifying the Lady Elizabeth. Indeed, what did they see at the prison? Instead of the wolf, the she-wolf, and the whelps, an ordinary middle-class family, with the mother rather the grey mare and spitfire, who would not let anyone touch the hem of her dress but of a brood of tyrants, not a trace. The king had taken up Latin again in order to educate his son, while the queen occupied herself with her daughter. The link of communication between the couple was the valet Clary, attached to the prince royal, but from the king's own servant, 
Hugh being dismissed, he waited on both. While hairdressing for the ladies, he repeated what the king wanted to transmit, quickly and in undertones. The queen would often interrupt her reading to her daughter by plunging into deep and gloomy musings. The princess would steal away on tiptoe to let her enjoy a new sorrow, which at least had the benefit of tears, and make a hushing sign to her brother. When the tear fell on her ivory hand, beginning to yellow, the poor prisoner would start back from her dream, her momentary freedom in the immense domain of thought and memories, and look round her prison with a lowered head and broken heart. Weather permitting, the family had a walk in the garden at one o'clock, with a corporal and his squad of the National Guard to watch them. Then the king went up to his rooms and on the third story to dine. It was then that Santerre came for his rigorous inspection. The king sometimes spoke with him, the queen never. She had forgotten what she owed to this man on the 20th of June. As we have stated, bodily needs were tyrannical in the king, who always indulged in an after-dinner nap. During this, the others remained silent around his easy chair. Only when he woke was the chat resumed. When the newsboys called out the news items in the evening, Clary listened and repeated what he caught to the king. After supper, the king went into the queen's room to bid her good night, as well as his sister, by a wave of the hand, and going into his library read till midnight. He waited before going off to sleep to see the guards changed, to know whether he had a strange face for the night watcher. This unchanging life lasted till the king left the small tower, that is, up to September 30th. It was a dull situation, and the more worthy of pity as it was dignifiedly supported. The most hostile were softened by the sight. They came to watch over the abominable tyrant who had ruined France, massacred Frenchmen, and called the foreigners in, over the queen who had united the lubricities of Messalina to the license of Catherine II. But they found a plain old fellow, whom they could not tell from his valet who ate and drank heartily and slept soundly, playing piquet or backgammon, teaching Latin and geography to his boy, and putting puzzles to his children out of old newspapers, and a wife, proud and haughty, one must admit, but calm, dignified, resigned, still handsome, teaching her daughter tapestry work and her son his prayers, speaking gently to the servants and calling them friends. The result was that the more the commune abased the prisoner, and the more he showed that he was like any other man, the more other men took pity on their fellow man. Still, all who came into contact with the royal family did not feel the same respect and pity. Hatred and revenge were so deeply rooted in these that the sight of the regal misery, supported with domestic virtues, only brought out rudeness insults and actual indignities. On the king saying that he thought a sentry was tired, the soldier pressed his hat on the more firmly and said in the teeth of the monarch, "'My place is here to keep an eye on you, and not for you to criticize me. Nobody has the right to meddle with my business, and you least of all.' Once the queen ventured to ask a town officer where he came from. "'I belong to the country.' he loftily replied. 
at least as much of it as your foreign friends have not taken possession of one day a municipal officer said to clary loud enough for the king to overhear i would guillotine the lot of them if the regular executioner backed out the sentinels decked the walls where the royalists came along to go into the garden with lines in this style the guillotine is a standing institution and is waiting for the tyrant louis madame vito will soon dance on nothing the fat hog must be put on short rations pull off the red ribbon he wears it will do to strangle his cubs with one drawing represented a man hanging and was labelled louis taking an air bath the worst tormentors were two lodgers in the temple rocher the sapper and simon the notorious cobbler the latter whose harsh treatment of the royal child has made him noted was insult personified every time he saw the prisoners it was to inflict a fresh outrage rocher was the man whom we saw take up the dauphin when charny fell and carry him into the house yet he placed by manuel to prevent harm befalling the captives resembled those boys who are given a bird to keep they kill time by plucking out the feathers one by one but however unhappy the prisoners were they had yet the comfort that they were under the same roof the commune resolved to part the king from his family Clary had an inkling of the intention but he could not get at the exact date until a general searching of the prisoners on the twenty ninth of september gave him a hint that night indeed they took away the king into rooms in the great tower which were wet with plaster and paint and the smell was unbearable but the king lay down to sleep without complaining while the valet passed the night on a chair when he was going out to attend to the prince whose attendant he strictly was the guard stopped him saying you are no longer to have communications with the other prisoners the king is not to see his children any more as they omitted to bring special food for the servant the king broke his bread with him weeping while the man sobbed when the workmen came to finish the rooms the town officer who superintended them came up to the king with some pity and said citizen i have seen your family at breakfast and i undertake to say that all were in health the king's heart ached at this kind feeling he thanked the man and begged him to transmit the report of his health to his dear ones he asked for some books and as the man could not read he accompanied clary down into the other rooms to let him select the reading matter Clary was only too glad, as this gave an opportunity of seeing the queen. He could not say more than a few words on account of the soldiers being present. The queen could not hold out any longer, and she besought to let them all have a meal in company. The municipal officers weakened and allowed this until further orders. One of them wept, and Simon said, "'Hang me if these confounded women will not get the waterworks running in my eyes.' but he added addressing the queen you did not do any weeping when you shot down the people on the tenth of august ah <sighs> said the queen the people have been much misled about our feelings toward them if you knew us better you would be sorry like this gentleman 
So the dinner was served in the old place. It was a feast, for they gained so much in one day, they thought. They gained everything, for nothing more was heard of the commune's new regulation. The king continued to see his family daily and to take his meals with them. One of these days, when he went in, he found the queen sweeping up the Dauphin's room, who was unwell. He stopped on the sill, let his head sink on his breast, and sighed. "'Ah, my lady, this is sorry work for a queen of France, and if they could see from Vienna what you are doing here, who would have thought that in uniting you to my fate I should ever bring you so low?' "'Do you reckon it as nothing?' replied Marie Antoinette. "'This glory of being the wife of the best and most persecuted of men.' This was spoken without an idea there were hearers, but all such sayings were picked up and diffused to embroider with gold the dark legend of the martyr king. End of chapter 24 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 25 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Master Gamain turns up. One morning, while these events were occurring at the temple, a man wearing a red shirt and cap to match, leaning on a crutch to help him to hobble along, called on the home secretary, Roland. The minister was most accessible but even a Republican official was forced to have ushers in his antechamber, as went on in monarchical governments. "'What do you want?' challenged the servant of the man on the crutch. "'I want to speak with the citizen minister,' replied the cripple. Since a fortnight the titles of citizen and citizeness had officially replaced all others. "'You will have to show a letter of audience.' replied the domestic. Hallo! I thought that was all very fine fun in the days when the tyrant ruled, but folks ought to be equals under the Republic, or at least not so aristocratic. This remark set the servant thinking. I can tell you it is no joke, continued the man in red, to drag all the way from Versailles to do the secretary of state a service and not to get a squint of him oh you come to do citizen roland a service do you to show up a conspiracy pooh we are up to our ears in conspiracies if that is all you came from versailles for i suggest you get back i don't mind but your minister will be deuced sorry for not seeing me it is the rule write to him and get a letter of audience then you will get on swimmingly hang me if it is not harder to get a word in to minister roland than to his majesty louis the sixteenth that was what do you know about that lord help your ignorance young man there was a time when I saw the king whenever I pleased. My name would tell you that. What is your name? Are you King Frederick William or the Emperor Francis? No, 
i am not a tyrant or a slave-driver no aristo but just nicolas claude gamain master of the masters of my trade of locksmithery did you never hear of master gamain who taught the craft to old capet the footman looked questioningly at his fellows who nodded then it is another pair of shoes write your name on a sheet of paper and i will send it in to the home secretary right it is all very easy to say right but i was no dabster at the pen before these villains tried to poison me and it is far worse now just look how they doubled me up with arsenic he showed his twisted legs deviated spine and hand curled up like a claw what did they serve you out of us poor old chap they did and that is what i have come to show the citizen minister along with the other matters as i hear they are getting up the indictment against old capet what i have to tell must not be lost for the nation five minutes afterward the locksmith was shown into the official's presence the master locksmith had never at the height of his fortune and in the best of health worn a captivating appearance but the malady to which he was a prey articular rheumatism in plain while twisting his limbs and disfiguring his features had not added to his embellishments the outcome was that never had an honest man faced a more ruffianly-looking rogue than roland when left alone with gamain the minister's first feeling was of repugnance but seeing how he trembled from head to foot pity for a fellow-man always supposing that a wretch like gamain is a fellow to a roland led him to use as his first words take a seat citizen you seem in pain i should rather think i am in pain replied gamain dropping on a chair and i have been so ever since the austrian poisoned me at these words a profound expression of disgust passed over the hearer's countenance while he exchanged a glance with his wife half hidden in the window recess and you came to denounce this poisoning that and other things do you bring proof of your accusations for that matter you have only to come with me to the tuileries and i will give you piles of it i will show you the secret hole in the wall where the brigand hid his hoard i ought to have guessed that the wine was poisoned that the austrian sneaked out to offer me a saying with her wheedling voice here you are gamain drink this glass of wine it will do you good now the work is done poisoned yes everybody knows continued gamain with sullen hate that those who help kings to conceal treasures never make old bones there is something at the bottom of this said mademoiselle roland coming forward at his glance this was the smith who was the king's tutor ask him about the hole in the wall the press 
said Gamain, who had overheard. Why, I am here to lay that open. It is an iron safe, with a lock-bolt working both ways, in which citizen Capet hid his private papers and savings. How did you come to know about it? Did he not send for me to show him how to finish the lock, one he made himself, and of course would not work smoothly? But this press would be smashed and rifled in the capture of the Tuileries. There is no danger of that. I defy anybody in the world to get the idea of it, barring him and me. Are you sure? Sure and certain. It is just the same as when he left the Tuileries. What do you say to all this, Madeleine? asked Roland of his wife when they had listened to Gamain's story, told in his prolix style. I say the revelation is of the utmost importance, and no time must be lost in verifying it. The secretary rang for his carriage, whereupon Gamain stood up sulkily. I see you have seen enough of me, he grumbled. Why, no, I only ring for my carriage. What? Do ministers have carriages under the Republic? They have to do so to save time, my friend. I call the carriage so that we shall be quickly at the Tuileries. But what about the key to the safe? It is not likely Louis the Sixteenth left it in the keyhole. Why, certainly not. For our fat Capet is not such a fool as he looks. Here is a duplicate, he continued, drawing a new key from his pocket. I made it from memory. I tell you, I am the master of my craft. I studied the lock, fancying some day— this is an awful scoundrel said roland to his wife yes but we have no right to reject any information coming to us in the present state of affairs in order to arrive at a knowledge of the truth am i to go with you asked the lady certainly as there are papers in the case are you not the most honest man i know Gamain followed them to the door, mumbling, "'I always said that I would pay all Capet out for what he did to me. What Louis the Sixteenth did was kindness.'" End of chapter 25 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 26 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry Williams this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE TRIAL OF THE KING On the 7th of November, the Girondists began the indictment against the king, assisted by the fatal deposit of papers in the iron safe, although those were missing which were confided to Mademoiselle Campan. After Gamain's opening the press, which was to have so severe an effect on the prisoners in the temple, Roland had taken them all to his office, where he read them and docketed them, though he vainly searched for the evidence of Danton's oft-cited venality. Besides, Danton had resigned as Minister of Justice. 
this great trial was to crown the victory of Valmy, which had made the defeated king of Prussia almost as angry as the news of the proclamation of the Republic in Paris. This trial was another step toward the goal to which men blundered like the blind, always excepting the invisibles. They saw things in the mass, but not in detail. Alone on the horizon stood the red guillotine, with the king at the foot of the scaffold on which it rose. In a materialistic era, when such a man as Danton was the head of the indulgent party, it was difficult for the wish not to be outrun by the deed. Yet only a few of the convention comprehended that royalty should be extirpated, and not the royal person slain. Royalty was a somber attraction, a menacing mystery of which men were weary, a whited sepulchre, fair without but full of rottenness. But the king was a different matter, a man who was far from interesting in his prosperity, but purified by misfortune and made great by captivity. Even on the queen, the magic of adversity was such that she had learned not to love for her, broken heart was a shattered vase from which the precious ointment had leaked out, but to venerate and adore in the religious sense of the word this prince, though a man whose bodily appetite and vulgar instincts had so often caused her to blush. Royalty smitten with death. But the king kept in perpetual imprisonment was a conception so grand and mighty that but few entertained it. "'The king must stand trial,' said the ex-priest Gregoire to the convention. "'But he has done so much to earn scorn that we have no room for hatred.' And Tom Paine wrote, "'I entreat you to go on with the trial, not so much of this king as the whole band of them. The case of this individual whom you have in your power will put you on the track of all. Louis the Sixteenth is useful as showing the necessity of revolutions.' So great minds like Payne and great hearts like Gregoire were in tune on this point. The kings were to be tried, and Louis might even be allowed to turn state's evidence. This has never been done, but it is good yet to do. Suppose the charge against the Empress Catherine, Pasiphae of the North. Who will say there would not come out instruction to the world from such a revelation? To the great disappointment of the Rolands, we repeat, the papers in the iron safe did not compromise Dumouriez and Danton. While they earned Gamain a pension, little alleviating the pangs of his ailment, which made him a thousand times regret the guillotine to which he consigned his master. But they injured the king and the priests, showing up the narrow mind, sharp and ungrateful of Louis, who only hated those who wanted to save him. Necay, Lafayette, and Mirabeau. There was nothing detrimental to the Girondists. Who was to read the dread indictment? Who was to be the sword-bearer and float over the court like the destroying angel? St. Just, the pet of Robespierre, a pale young man with womanly lips who uttered the atrocious words. The point was that the king must be killed. The speech made a terrible impression. Not one of the judges but felt the repeated word enter his soul like steel. 
Robespierre was appalled to see his disciple plant the red flag of revolution so far ahead of the most advanced outposts of republicanism. As time progressed, the watch over the prisoners was closer, and Clary could learn nothing. But he picked up a newspaper stating that Louis would be brought before the bar of the house on the 11th of December. Indeed, at five that morning, the Revaille was beaten all over Paris. The temple gates were opened to bring in cannon, but no one would tell the captives the meaning of the unusual stir. Breakfast was the last meal they partook of in company. When they parted, the prince was left playing a numerical game with his father, who kept the truth from him. "'Curse sixteen, said the boy on losing three times running. "'I believe you are bad luck.' The king was struck by the figure. At eleven the Dauphin was removed, and the king left in silence, as the officials did not intrude for fear he would question them. At one o'clock Santerre arrived with officers, and a registrar who read the decree calling, quote, the prisoner Louis Capet, end quote, before the house. The king interrupted to say that Capet was not his name, but that of an ancestor. He stopped the reading on the grounds that he had read it in the papers. As it was raining, they had a carriage in which to carry him. On alighting, Santerre laid his hand on his shoulder and led him to the same spot at the bar by the same chair where he had taken the oath to the Constitution. All members save one had kept their seats as he entered. This one saluted him. The astonished king recognized Gilbert. He wished him good day. "'Are you acquainted with Dr. Gilbert?' asked Santerre. "'He was my physician once, so I hope no ill-feeling will be harbored because he was polite to me.' The examination began. Unfortunately, the glamour of misfortune vanished before duplicity. Not only did the king answer the questions put to him, but he did so badly, stammering, hesitating, trying to evade direct issues, chaffering for his life like a pettifogger arguing a party fence case in a county court. The king did not appear at his best in broad day. The examination lasted five hours. Though he refused refreshment offered, he asked a grenadier for a piece of the bread he saw him eating. On crossing the yard to step into the carriage, the mob sung with marked emphasis the line of the Marseillaise about the impure blood should fertilize our furrows. This made him lose color. The return was miserable. In the public hack, swaying on the black, pestiferous, vile pavement, while the mob surged up to the windows to see him, he blinked his eyes at the daylight. His beard was long and his thin hair of a dirty yellow hue. His thin cheeks fell in folds on his wrinkled neck. Clad in a gray suit with a dark brown overcoat, he mumbled with the bourbon's automatic memory, "'This is such and such a street.' On remarking that Orléans Street had been changed to Egalite, on account of the duke having dropped his titles, though that did not save him from the guillotine, he fell into silence and so returned into prison. He was not allowed to see his family, and had to go to bed without the meal with them. "'Ah, oh, Clary,' he said to his man as he undressed him, 
I little dreamed what questions they were going to put to me. Indeed, almost all the inquiry was based on the contents of the iron safe, which he did not suspect was discovered from having no idea that Gamain had betrayed him. Nevertheless, he soon sunk to sleep with that tranquillity of which he had given so many proofs, and which might be taken for lethargy. But the other prisoners did not bear the separation and the secrecy so tamely. In the morning, the queen asked to see her husband. But the only arrangement offered was that the king might see his children, on condition that they should not see their mother or aunt any more. The king refused this plan. Consequently, the queen had her son's bed put in her rooms, and she did not quit him till removed for trial by the revolutionary tribunal, as her husband was by the convention. Clary, however, worked communications with a servant of the princess named Tergy. They exchanged a few words and passed notes scratched with pins on scraps of paper on the lady's side. The king could write properly, as he had writing materials supplied since his trial commenced. By means of a string, collected from the pieces around the packets of candles, Clary lowered pens, ink, and paper to Princess Elizabeth, whose window was below that of the valet's room. Hence the family had news of one another daily. On the other hand, the king's position was morally much worse, since he had appeared before the convention. It had been surmised that he would either refuse to answer any interrogation, like Charles I, whose history he knew so well, or else that he would answer proudly and loftily in the name of royalty, not like an accused criminal, but a knight accepting the gauge of battle. Unfortunately, Louis was not regal enough to do either act. He so entangled himself that he had to ask for counsel. The one he named, fearing to accept the task, it fell to Malherbes, who had been in the Turgo ministry a commonplace man, in whom little did any suspect contempt for death. On the day of his execution, for he was beheaded, he wound up his watch as usual. Throughout the trial he styled the king sire. Attacked by a flow of blood to the head, the king asked for Dr. Gilbert to be allowed to attend him, but the application was refused, and he was brutally told that if he drank cold water he would not have such a fullness of blood. As he was not allowed a knife to carve his food, unless a servant did it before the guards, so he was not let shave but in the presence of four municipal officers. On the evening of the twenty-fifth he wrote his will, in which he said that he did not blame himself for any of the crimes of which he was accused. He did not say that they were false. This evasive response was worthy the pupil of the Duke of Aguillon. In any case, the twenty-sixth found him ready for any fate, death included. His counsel read the defense, which was a purely legal document. It seems to us that if we had been charged with it, we should not have spoken for the law, but let St. Louis and Henry the Fourth defend their descendants from the crimes of their intermediate successors. The more unjust the accusation, the more eloquent should have been the rejoinder. Hence the convention asked in astonishment, Have you nothing more to say in your defense? 
he had nothing to say, and went back to the temple. When his defender called in the evening, he told him of a number of gentlemen who were pledged to prevent the execution. "'If you do not know them personally,' said the king to La Moignard Malherbe, "'try to come in touch with them and tell them that I will never forgive myself for bloodshed on my behalf. I would not have it spilled to save my throne and my life when that was possible. All the more reason for me not allowing it now.' The voting on the 16th of January, 1793, was on three points. Is Louis guilty? Shall there be an appeal from the convention to the people? State the penalty. To the first question was the answer of 683 voices. Yes. To the appeal question, 281 eyes and 423 noes. The third decision of the penalty was subdivided into death, imprisonment, banishment, or death with the people allowed to reduce it to imprisonment. All tokens of approval or displeasure were prohibited, but when a member said anything but death, murmurs arose. Once there were groans and hisses when a member spoke for death, when Philippe Egalite cast his vote for the execution of his kinsmen. The majority for death was seven, and Vergniaud uttered the sentence with deep emotion. It was three on the morning of the twentieth Sunday. The illustrious culprit was up when Malice Herbs bore him the news. "'I was sure of it,' he said, shaking hands with his defender. For two days I have been trying to find if I have merited my subject's reproach for what I have done in the course of my reign. I swear to you in all sincerity, as a man about to appear before his maker, that I have always wished the happiness of my people, and have not framed a wish contrary to it. The death warrant was officially read to him, and he was allowed to choose his own confessor. The name of one had been already written down by Princess Elizabeth, whose confessor this Abbe Edgeworth was. End of chapter 26 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 27 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE PARALLEL TO CHARLES I. This worthy priest of English origin had escaped the September massacres and was hiding out at Choisy, under the name of Essex, as the Princess Elizabeth knew and where to find him. He came to the call, though he believed that he would be killed within an hour of the dreadful scene. He was not to quit the prisoner till he quitted the world. The king was allowed to take farewell of his family in the dining-room, where the glass door allowed the guards still to keep him in sight. They knew the trial had taken place, but not the particulars with which he supplied them. He dwelt particularly on the fact that Petion had not pressed for the death penalty, and that Gilbert had voted to spare his life. Heaven owed the poor prisoner some comfort, and it came in the love of the queen. As has been seen in our story, the queen easily let the picturesque side of life attract her. 
she had that vivid imagination which makes women imprudent even more than disposed she had been imprudent all her life in her friendship and in her loving her captivity saved her in a moral point of view she returned to the pure and holy domestic virtues from which youthful passions had led her and as she could do nothing without extravagance she fell to loving passionately in his distress this royal consort whose vulgar traits were all she could see in the days of felicity in their first disasters she saw a dullard almost cowardly without impulse or resolution at the temple she began to see that the wife had not only misjudged the husband but the queen the monarch she beheld one calm and patient meek but firm under outrages all the worldly dryness in her was melted and turned to the profit of better sentiments the same as she had scorned too deeply she loved too fondly alas the king said to his confessor to think that i love so dearly and am loved so much in their last interviews the queen seemed to yield to a feeling akin to remorse when she found that she could not be alone with her lord she drew him into a window recess where she would have fallen on her knees at his feet but he understood that she wanted to ask his forgiveness so he stayed with her and drew his will from his pocket to show her the lines i pray my wife to forgive all the woes i have led her to suffer and the sorrows caused her in the course of our union as she may be sure that i cherish no ill feeling toward her if she should think that she had reason to blame herself in any way marie kissed his hands for while there was a full pardon there was great delicacy too in the rest of the phrase so this royal magdalen might die tranquil late as came her love for her husband it won her divine and human mercy and her pardon was bestowed on earth not in a mysterious whimper as an indulgence of which the king felt ashamed but openly and publicly who would reproach her who went toward posterity with the double crown of the martyr and her husband's forgiveness the poignant farewell lasted nearly two hours before the condemned went out to his priest as day began to break the drums were beaten throughout the town the bustle and the sound penetrated the old tower and chilled the blood of the priest and clary at nine o'clock the noise increased and the doors were loudly flung open santerre came in followed by town officers and soldiers who formed a double row the king received the priest's blessing and a prayer for support and called for his hat as all the others had kept their hats on seeing that clary had his overcoat ready for fear he would be cold and the shiver would be taken for that of fright he said no nothing but my hat he took advantage of the act to shake his hand for the last time let us go gentlemen he said with the tone of command so rarely used by him in crossing the first yard he turned two or three times to wave a farewell to his dear ones with the priest he stepped into a hack and the procession started leaving the queen no hope save for a rescue on the road that of a respite had already vanished 
she fell into a chair sobbing to think of his going without saying good-bye the streets were foggy and deserted as all citizens were forbidden to be about unless belonging to the armed militia and there were no faces up at the windows all the prisoners saw was a forest of pikes and bayonets with a large drum corps before the party and cavalry around the clamor prevented the king talking with the confessor who read his prayer-book at st Gate, the king lifted his head for the uproar was marked by a change in the shouts a dozen young men sword in hand rushed through the retinue and shouted rescue this way those who would save the king one baron de batz an adventurer had engaged three thousand bravos to make this attempt but only a handful responded when he sounded the signal cry the forlorn hope of royalty meeting no reply retreated and slipped away in the confusion the incident was of such slight importance that the carriage did not stop it was at its journey's end when it did one of the three brothers sanson the paris executioners came to open the door laying his hand on the abbe's knee the king said in a tone of a master gentlemen i recommend this gentleman to you take care of him after my death for he has done nobody harm he threw off his coat not to be touched by the headsman one had a rope to bind his hands but he said he would not submit to it a hand-to-hand -hand fight would rob the victim of all the merit of six months calmness courage and resignation so the confessor advised him to yield particularly as one of the sansons moved with pity offered to substitute a handkerchief he held out his hands resignedly saying do as you like i shall drain the chalice to the dregs the scaffold steps were high and slippery and he had the priest's arm for support but on the top step he escaped so to say from the spiritual guide and went to the further end of the platform he was flushed in the face and had never appeared more hale or animated the drums began to beat but he imposed silence by a look as with a lusty voice he said i die innocent of all the crimes imputed to me i forgive the authors of my death and i pray god that this blood shall not fall on france strike up drums roared a voice long believed to be santerre's but was that of beaufranchet count oillard illegitimate son of louis the fifteenth and a courtesan the prisoner's natural uncle the drums beat and the king stamped his foot in vain do your duty yelled the pikemen to the executioners who threw themselves on the king he returned with slow steps under the knife of which he had designed the proper shape only a year ago he glanced at the priest who was praying at a corner of the scaffold behind the two upright beams a scuffle went on the tilting flap fell into place and the prisoner's head appeared in the ominous gap a flash a dull chopping sound was heard and a large jet of blood spouted forth then one of the death's men taking up the head sprinkled the bystanders with the dripping fluid at this sight the pikemen whooped and rushed to dye their weapons in the blood 
which they ran to show the town with shouts of long live the republic for the first time this cry found no echo though it had oft thrilled hearers with joy the republic had a stain on the brow which nothing ever could efface as a great diplomatist said it had committed worse than a crime a blunder thus died on the twenty first of january seventeen ninety three king louis the sixteenth he was aged thirty-nine years he had reigned eighteen and was over five months a prisoner his last wish was not accomplished for his blood not only fell on france but over the whole of europe End of chapter 27. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 28 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cagliostro's Advice On the evening of this awful day, while the pike-bearers were scouring Paris through streets illuminated but deserted, to exhibit rags dyed in blood, with shouts of, The tyrant is dead! Behold his blood! Two men whose dress was different sat in silence in a room in a house on St. Honor Street. Dressed in black, one was sitting at a table with his head resting on his hand, plunged into deep reverie, if not grief. The other, wearing a countryman's dress, strode up and down with wrinkled forehead, gloomy eye, and folded arms. Every time his crossing line brought him by the table, he cast a glance on the thinker. At last the countryman stopped and said as he fixed his eye on the other, "'Come now, citizen Gilbert, am I a brigand because I voted for the king's death?' The man in black raised his head shook his melancholy brow, and said, holding out his hand to his companion, "'No, Belay, you are no more a brigand for that than I am an aristocrat for voting the other way. You voted according to your conscience, and I to mine. It is a terrible thing to take away from man that which you cannot restore.' "'So it is your opinion that despotism is inviolable?' returned Belay. Liberty is revolt, and there is no justice on earth except such as kings, that is, tyrants, dispense. Then what remains for the people? The right to serve and obey? Do you, Gilbert, the pupil of Rousseau, say that? No, Belay, for that would be an impiety against the people. Come, said the farmer. I am going to talk to you with the roughness of my plain good sense, to which I do not mind your answering with all the sharpness of your fine wit. Do you admit that a nation, believing itself oppressed, should have the right to disestablish its church, lower or even demolish the throne, fight, and make itself free? Not a doubt of it. Then? It has the right to gather in the spoils of the victory. Yes, Belay. But not to compass such things with murder and violence. 
remember that it is written thou shalt not kill thy neighbor but the king was no neighbor of mine returned belay he was my enemy i remember what my poor mother read me in the bible of what samuel said to the israelites who asked him to appoint a king so do i belay and samuel anointed saul he did not kill him oh i know that if i get to arguing with you in book learning i shall lose so i shall simply ask you were we right to take the bastille yes when the king took away our right to hold a meeting were we right to meet in another place you were had we the right when the king gathered foreign troops at versailles to feast them and overawe us to take him away from among them and lodge him in paris yes to bring him back when he tried to run away from the country yes then we had a right to shut him up where he was so little out of mischief that he continued to correspond with the invader ought we not have brought him before the court for trial to doom him and i to banish to perpetually imprison all except death because guilty in the result he was not so in the intention you judge him from the people standing belay but he acted like the son of kings was he a tyrant as you call him no an oppressor of the people no an accomplice of aristocrats and an enemy of freedom no then you judge him as royalty would no for then he would have been acquitted but you did so by voting for his life no with life imprisonment granting he was not your neighbor but your enemy he was a vanquished one and ought not to have been slain in cold blood that is not execution but immolation you have conferred on royalty something like martyrdom and made justice seem vengeance take care in doing too much you have not done enough charles of england was executed but his son reigned but james the second was banished and his sons died in exile human nature is humane and you have alienated from the republic for fifty or a hundred years the immense proportion of the population judging revolutions by their feelings believe me my friend republicans ought most to bewail the death of louis for the blood will fall on them and cost the republic its life there is some truth in what you say gilbert said a voice at the door cogliostro exclaimed both debaters turning with the same impulse yes but there is also truth in what belay said 
"'That is the trouble in it,' sighed Gilbert. "'The cause we plead has two faces, and each, as he looks upon it, can say he is right.' "'But he ought also to admit that he may be wrong.' "'What is your opinion, master?' asked the doctor. "'Yes, your opinion,' said Belay. "'You have been trying the accused over again. "'But you should test the sentence. "'Had you doomed the king, you would have been right. "'You doomed the man, and you were wrong.' "'I don't understand,' said Belay. "'You ought to have slain the king amid his guards and courtiers, "'while unknown to the people.' when he was to them a tyrant. But, after having let him live and dwell under the eyes of the private soldier, the petty civil servant, the workman, as a man, this sham abasement elevated him, and he ought to have been banished or locked up, as happens to any man. "'I did not understand you.' said Belay to the doctor. "'But I do the citizen Cagliostro.' "'Just think of their five months' captivity molding this lump, who was born to be a parish beetle, into a statue of courage, patience, and resignation on a pedestal of sorrow. You sanctified him so that his wife adored him.' "'Who would have dreamed, my dear Gilbert?' said the magician, bursting into laughter. "'That Marie Antoinette would ever have loved her mate.' "'Oh, if I had only guessed this,' muttered Belay, "'I would have slain him before. I could have done it easily.' These words were spoken with such intense patriotism that Gilbert pardoned them, while Cogliostro admired. "'But you did not do it,' said the latter. "'You voted for death, and you, Gilbert, for life. "'Now, let me give you a last piece of advice. "'You, Gilbert, strove to be a member of the Convention to accomplish a duty. "'You, Belay, to fulfill vengeance. Both are realized. You have nothing more to do here. Be gone. The two stared at him. Tomorrow your indulgence will be regarded as a crime, and on the next day your severity as bad. Believe me, in the mortal strife preparing between hatred fear, revenge, fanaticism. Few will remain unspotted. Some will be fouled with mud, some with blood. Go, my friends. Go. But France, said the doctor. Yes, France, echoed Belay. Materially, said Cogliostro. France is saved, 
the external enemy is baffled the home one dead the revolution holds the axe in one hand and the tricolored flag in the other go in tranquillity for before she lays them down the aristocracy will be beheaded and europe conquered go my friends go to your second country america will you go with me belay asked the doctor will you forgive me asked belay the two clasped hands you must go at once the ship franklin is ready to sail but my son cogliostro opened the door come in sebastian he said your father calls you the young man rushed into his father's arms while Bellay sighed. "'My carriage is at the door,' said Cogliostro. Then, in a whisper to the doctor, while Bellay was asking news of the youth, he said emphatically, "'Take him away. He must not know how he lost his mother. He might thirst for revenge.' Gilbert nodded and opened a money drawer. "'Fill your pockets,' he said to Bellay. "'Will there be enough in a strange country?' he asked. "'Bless you! With land at five dollars an acre, cleared! We can buy a county! But what are you looking round for?' "'For what would be no use to me? Who cannot write?' "'I see you want to send good-bye to Petou. Let me.' "'What have you written?' "'My dear Petou, we are leaving France.' Belay, Sebastian, and I, and send you our united love. We think that as you are manager of Belay's farm, you do not need anything. One of these days we may write for you to come over and join us. Your friend, Gilbert. Is that all? asked the farmer. There is a postscript, said the writer, looking the farmer in the face as he said. Belay hopes... You will take the best care of Catherine. Belay uttered a cry of gratitude and shook Gilbert's hand again. Ten minutes afterward, the post-chaise carried far from Paris Gilbert and his friend and the son of Andrea of Charny. End of chapter 28 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter Twenty Nine of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Crown of Ange's Love. A little over a year after the execution of the king, and the departure of Gilbert, his son, and Belay, on a fine cold morning of the hard winter of seventeen ninety four, three or four hundred persons that is, a sixth of the population of Villers-Cotterets, waited on the square before the manor-house and in the mayor's yard for the coming out of two married folks, whom Mayor Longpre was uniting in the holy bonds. These were Ange Pitou and Catherine Belay. Alas, it had taken many grave events to bring the flame of Viscount Charny, the mother of little Isidore, to become Mistress Pitou. 
Everybody was chattering over these events, but in whatever manner they related and discussed them, there was always something to the greater glory of the devotion of Ange Pitou and the good behavior of Belay's daughter. Only the more interesting the couple were, the more they were pitied. Perhaps they were happier than any in the crowd, but human nature is inclined that way. It must pity or applaud. On this occasion it was in the compassionate vein. Indeed, what Cogliostro had foreseen had come on rapidly, leaving a long track of blood after it. On the 1st of February, 1793, the issue of more paper money was agreed. In March, the fugitive nobles were perpetually banished and their property confiscated. In November, a new kind of religion was proposed instead of the established church. The result of the confiscation decree was that Belay and Gilbert being considered fugitives, their lands were seized for the public good. The same fate befell the estates of the Charnese, the count having been killed and the countess murdered in prison. The consequence to Catherine was that she was turned out of Belay's farm, which was national property. Pitou wanted to protest, but Pitou was a moderate and a suspect and wise souls advised him not to oppose the orders of the nation in will or deed. So Catherine and Pitou had gone over to Haramal. She had thought of taking refuge in Daddy Clovis's lodge, but he appeared at the door to lay his finger on his lips and shake his head in token of impossibility. The place was already occupied. The law on the banishment of refractory priests was still in force, and it is easy to understand that Father Fortier had banished himself, as he would not take the oath. But he had not felt like passing the frontier, and his exile was limited to his leaving his house in charge of his sister, to see the furniture was not stolen, and asking Clovis for shelter which was granted. This retreat was only a cave, and it would with difficulty hold, in addition to the corpulent priest, Catherine, little Isidore, and Pitou. Besides, we recall the refusal of the priest to bury Mrs. Belay. Catherine was not good Christian enough to overlook the unkindness, and had she been so, the Abbey Fortier was too good a Catholic to forgive her. So they had to give up the idea of staying with old Clovis. This choice lay between Aunt Angelique's house and Pitou's lodgings at Haramal. They dared not think of the former. As the revolution had followed its course, Angelique had become more and more diabolical, which seems incredible, and thinner, which seems impossible. This change in her temper and her physique arose from the fact that the churches were closed at Villers as elsewhere, awaiting the invention of a reasonable and civic cult, according to the Board of Public Instruction. The churches being shut, Aunt Angelique's principal revenue from letting seats fell into disuse. It was the drying up of her income which made her tartar. We beg pardon, tartar and bonier than ever. Let us add that she had so often heard the story of Pitou and Belay capturing the Bastille, and so often seen them start off for Paris whenever any great event was to take place, that she did not in the least doubt that the French Revolution was led by Ange Pitou and Farmer Belay, with citizens d'Anton, Marat, Robespierre, and company playing the secondary parts. The priest's sister fostered her in these somewhat erroneous opinions, 
to which the regicidal vote of Belay had given the seal on heated fanaticism. Petou ought not to think of placing the regicide's daughter under Angelique's roof. As for the petty accommodation at Heramont, how could he think of installing two, there were three, souls in two rooms, while if they were comfortable it would set evil tongues wagging? It was more out of the question than Clovis's hut. So Petou made up his mind to beg shelter for himself of Désir Maniquet. That worthy son of Heramont gave the hospitality which Petou paid for in kind, but all this did not provide Catherine with a fixed habitation. Petou showed her all the attentions of a loving friend and the affection of a brother, but poor Catherine was well aware that he did not love her like friend or brother. Little Isidore had something of the same idea, for the poor child, having never known the Viscount of Charny, loved him more, perhaps, for Petou was not merely the sweetheart of Catherine, but his slave. A skillful strategist must have understood that the way to win Catherine's heart was through the help of the little one. But we hasten to say that no such calculation tarnished the purity of Petou's sentiments. He was just the simple fellow we met him at the first, unless on becoming a man he became simpler than ever. All his good gifts touched Catherine. She saw that Petou adored her ardently to the point of fanaticism, and she caught herself wishing that she could repay so great a love and utter devotion with something better than friendship. Gradually, by dint of dwelling on her isolation from all the world, Petou accepted, and on her boy being left alone if she were to die, Petou again accepted, she came to giving Petou the only reward in her power, her hand. Alas! Her first love, that perfumed flower of youth, was in heaven. For six months Catherine had been nourishing this conclusion without Petou suspecting that the wind was blowing up in his favor, though her welcoming was a shade warmer and her parting a trifle more lingering each time. So she was forced to speak the first. But women take the lead in such matters. One evening, instead of offering her hand, she held up her cheek for a kiss— Petou thought she had forgot and was too honest to take advantage of a mistake. But Catherine had not let go his hand, and she drew him closer to her. Seeing him still hesitate, little Isidore joining in, saying, "'Why won't you kiss Mama Catherine, Papa Petou?' "'Good gracious,' gasped Petou, turning pale as if about to die, but letting his cold and trembling lip touch her cheek. Taking the boy up, she put him in Petou's arms and said, "'I give you the boy, Ange. Will you have the mother?' This time it was too much for the swain, whose head swam. He shut his eyes, and while he hugged the child, he dropped on a chair and panted with the delicacy which only a delicate heart could appreciate. "'Oh, Master Isidore, how very fond I am of you!' Isidore called Petou, Papa Petou, but Petou called him Master Isidore. That is why, as he felt that love for her son had made Catherine love Ange, he did not say, Oh, how dearly I love you, Catherine. This point settled that Petou thought more of Isidore than of Catherine. They spoke of marriage. I don't want to seem in a hurry, said the man, but if you mean to make me happy, do not be too long about it. Catherine took a month 
At the end of three weeks, Ange, in full regimentals, went respectfully to pay a visit to Aunt Angelique, with the aim to inform her of his near-at-hand union with Catherine Belay. Seeing her nephew from afar, she hastened to shut her door, but he did not hold back from the inhospitable door whence he had once been expelled. He rapped gently. "'Who is there?' snarled Angelique in her sourest voice. "'I, your dutiful nephew, Ange Pitou. "'Go on your bloody way, you September man of massacre!' cried Aunt Angelique. "'Auntie, I come to tell you of a bit of news which cannot fail to make you jolly, because it is my happiness.' "'What is this news, you red-capped Jacobin?' "'I will tell you if you open the door.' "'Say it through the door. I shall not open to a breechless outlaw like you.' "'If there is no other way, here you have it. I am going to get married.' The door flew open as by magic. "'Who are you going to marry, you wretched fellow?' asked the old spinster. "'Catherine Belay, please.' "'Oh, the villain, the scamp, the regicide,' said the good soul. "'He marries a ruined girl. Get you gone, scapegrace. I curse you.' With a gesture quite noble, she held up her dry and yellow hands toward her nephew. "'Dear aunt,' replied the young man. You ought to know that I am too well hardened to your maledictions to care a fig for them. I only wanted to do the proper thing by inviting you to dance at my wedding. If you won't come, still, I have asked you to shake a leg. Shake a fie for shame! Very well, sweet Aunt Angelique. Touching his cocked hat in the military manner, Petou made a salute to his relative and hurried away. End of chapter 29. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 30 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in a public domain. The Effect of Happy News. Petou had to tell his intended marriage to Mayor Longpre, who lived hard by. Less set against the Belay family than Angelique, he congratulated Petou on the match. Petou listened to his praise without seeing where he was doing very much of a noble action. By the way, as a pure Republican, Petou was delighted to find that the Republic had done away with the publication of the bans and other ecclesiastical trammels which had always galled true lovers. It was therefore settled between the mayor and the suitor that the wedding should take place on the following Saturday at the town hall. Next day, Sunday, the sale of the Charny estate and the Belay farm was to come off, the latter at the upset price of four hundred thousand, and the other at six hundred thousand in paper money. Asanats were dropping fearfully. The gold louis was worth nine hundred and twenty francs in paper. But, then— Nobody ever saw a gold piece nowadays. Petou had run all the way back to acquaint Catherine with the good news. He had ventured to anticipate the marriage day by forty-eight hours, and he was afraid he should vex Catherine. 
She did not appear vexed, and he was lifted up among the angels, his namesakes. But she insisted on his going once more to Aunt Angelique's, to announce the exact date of the wedding day and invite her to be at the ceremony. She was the bridegroom's sole relative, and, though not at all tender toward him, he ought to do the proper thing on his side. The consequence was that on Thursday morning Pitou went over to Villers Cotteret to repeat the visit. Nine o'clock was striking as he got in sight of the house. The aunt was not on the doorstep, but the door was closed anyway as if she expected his call. He thought that she had stepped out, and he was delighted. He would have paid the visit, and a polite note with a piece of wedding cake after the ceremony would acquit the debt to courtesy. Still, he was a conscientious fellow. He went up to the door and knocked. As no answer came to his raps, he called. At the double appeal of knuckle and voice, a neighbor appeared at her own door. "'Do you know whether or no my aunt has gone out?' "'Eh, Mother Fagot?' asked Batou. "'Has she not answered?' asked Dame Fagot. "'No, she has not, as you see. "'So I guess she has gone out for a gossip.' Mother Fagot shook her head. "'I should have seen her go out,' she said. "'My door opens the same way as hers, "'and it is pretty seldom that in getting up of a morning—' She does not drop into our house to get some warm ashes to put in her shoes, with which the poor dear lamb keeps her toes warm all the day. Ain't that so, neighbor Fabillet? This question was addressed to a fresh character, who, likewise opening his door, shoved his conversational oar into the parley. What are you talking about, Madame Fagot? I was a saying that Aunt Angelique had not gone out. "'Have you seen anything of her?' "'That I hain't, and I am open to wager that she has not gone out. "'Otherwise her shutters would not be open, do you see?' "'By all that is blue, that is true enough,' remarked Batou. "'Heavens, I hope nothing unfortunate has happened to my poor aunt.' "'I should not wonder,' said Mother Fagot. "'It is more than possible. It is probable,' said Faroulet sententiously. "'To tell the truth, she was not over tender to me,' went on Patou. "'But I do not want harm to befall her for all that. How are we going to find out the state of things?' "'That is not a puzzle,' suggested a third neighbor, joining in. "'Send for Rigolo, the locksmith.' "'If it is to open the door, he is not wanted,' said Pitou. "'I know a little trick of prying the bolt with a knife.' "'Well, go ahead, my lad,' said Faroulet. "'We are all witnesses that you pick the lock with the best intentions, and your pocket-knife.' Pitou had taken out his knife, and in the presence of a dozen persons attracted by the occurrence, he slipped back the bolt with a dexterity proving that he had used this means of opening the way— more than once in his youth. The door was open, but the interior was plunged into complete darkness. As the daylight gradually penetrated and was diffused, they could descry the form of the old girl on her bed. Patou called her by name twice, but she remained motionless and without response. He went in and up to the couch. 
"'Hello!' he exclaimed, touching the hands. "'She is cold and stark.' They opened the windows. Aunt Angelique was dead. "'What a misfortune!' said Petou. "'Tush!' said Ferrelet. "'A hard winter is coming, and wood never so dear. She saves by departing, where the firing is plentiful. Besides, your aunt did not dote on you.' "'Maybe so,' said Petou, with tears as big as walnuts. "'But I liked her pretty well.' my poor auntie said the big baby falling on his knees by the bed i say captain patou said mademoiselle fagot if you want anything just let us know if we ain't good neighbors we ain't good for anything thank you mother is that boy of yours handy yes hey Fagotin, called the good woman. A boy of fourteen stood frightened at the door. Here I am, mother, he said. Just bid him trot over to Herimont, to tell Catherine not to be uneasy about me, as I have found my Aunt Julique dead. Poor aunt. He wiped away fresh tears. That is what is keeping me here. "'You hear that, Fagotin? Then off you go.' "'Go through Soissons Street,' said the wise Ferrelet, "'and notify Citizen Reynal that there is a case of sudden death to record at old Miss Petou's.' The boy darted off on his double errand. The crowd had kept increasing till there were a hundred before the door— each had his own opinion on the cause of the decease, and all whispered among themselves, "'If Petou is no fool, he will find some hoard smuggled away in an old sock, or in a crock, or in a hole in the chimney.' Dr. Reynal arrived in the midst of this, preceded by the head tax-gatherer. The doctor went up to the bed, examined the corpse, and declared to the amaze of the lookers-on— that the death was due to cold and starvation. This redoubled Petou's tears. "'Oh, poor aunt!' he wailed. "'And I thought she was so rich. I am a villain for having left her to poverty. Oh, had I only known this! It cannot be, Dr. Reynal.' "'Look into the hutch and see if there is any bread.' in the wood-box and see if there is any firewood i have always foretold that the old miser would end up in this way searching they found not a crumb or a splinter oh why did she not tell me this mourned petou i would have chopped up some wood for her and done some poaching to fill the larder it is your fault too the poor fellow added, accusing the crowd. "'You ought to have told me that she was in want.' "'We did not tell you that she was in want,' returned Wiseacre Ferrelet. "'For the plain reason that everybody believed that she was 
rolling in riches dr reynal had thrown the sheet over the cold face and proceeded toward the door when patou intercepted him are you going doctor why what more do you expect me to do here then she is undoubtedly dead dear me to die of cold and hunger too reynal beckoned him boy i am of the opinion that you should none the less seek high and low he said but doctor after your saying she died of want misers have been known to die the same way lying on their treasures hush he said laying a finger on his lips and going outdoors end of chapter thirty recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter thirty one of the countess of charny by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain the easy chair pitou would have pondered more deeply on what the doctor told him only he spied catherine running up with her boy in her arms since there was no doubt that aunt angelique had died of privation the eagerness of the neighbors to help her nephew had lessened so catherine arrived most timely as she might be considered the wife of pitou it was her place to attend to his aunt which the good creature set about doing with the same tenderness she had shown a while before to her own mother meanwhile pitou ran out to arrange for the funeral which would be at two days time as the suddenness of the death compelled retention of the remains forty-eight hours religious ceremonies being suppressed for funerals as for marriages he had only to do business with the sexton and the grave digger after the mayor before he departed catherine suggested that the marriage should be deferred for a day or two as it would look strange for an act so important and joyous as a wedding to be performed on the same day as he conducted his aunt's remains to the cemetery besides my dear it is bad luck to have a wedding while a grave is open stuff said patou from the moment i am your husband i defy misfortune to get a grip on me dear patou let us put it off till monday said the bride holding up her hand to him you see that i am trying to make your wishes suit proprieties but two days is a deuce of a long time catherine not when you have been waiting five years a lot of things may happen in forty-eight hours moaned patou my falling off in love cannot happen ange and as you pretend that is the only thing in the world which concerns you lord yes catherine the only only thing why then look here isadore say to papa patou do not be afraid papa patou mamma loves you dearly and will always love you the child repeated this in his pretty voice on this assurance patou made no difficulty about going to the mayor's he returned in about an hour with all settled and paid for with what money he had left he laid in a stock of wood and food for a couple of days it was high time that the firing had come into the old weather-worn house where the wind poured in at many a chink 
and they might perish of cold. Patou had found Catherine half-frozen when he got back. According to Catherine's wish, the marriage was postponed until Monday. The intermediate time passed, with the pair mourning by the deathbed. Despite the huge fire Patou kept roaring, the wind came in so sharp and chill that Patou acknowledged that if his aunt had not died of hunger, she must have been carried off by the cold. The time came for the removal of the corpse, the transit not taking long as Aunt Angelique's dwelling adjoined the burial ground. All of that quarter and other representatives of the town went to the funeral, which Patou and Catherine led as the chief mourners. When the ceremony terminated, Patou thanked those attending in his name and that of the dead, and they all filed before him, throwing holy water into the old maid's grave. When left alone, Patou looked round for Catherine and saw her and Isidore kneeling on another grave where cypresses were planted. It was Mother Belay's. Patou had dug those four cypresses in the woods and transplanted them. He did not care to disturb them in this pious occupation. But thinking that Catherine would be very cold at the end of her devotions, he determined to run on before and have a good fire blazing at her return. Unfortunately, one thing opposed the realization of this good intention. They were out of wood. Patou was in a pinch, for he was out of money, too. He looked round him to see if there was nothing good to burn. There was Aunt Angelique's bread-safe, bed, and easy-chair. The bed and cupboard were not unworn, but they were still good, while the armchair was so rickety that nobody but the owner had ever risked themselves in it. It was therefore condemned. Like the revolutionary tribunal, Pitou had no sooner condemned a thing than he proceeded to execute it. Pitou set his knee to the seat, and seizing one of the sides, gave a pull. At the third of such tugs, it gave way at the joints. It uttered a kind of squeak as if an animal capable of feeling pain and expressing emotion. If Pitou had been superstitious, he might have imagined that the ant's spirit had located itself in her old armchair. But... Patou had no superstition except his love for Catherine. The article of furniture was doomed to warm her, and though it had bled in each limb like an enchanted tree, it would have been rent to pieces. He grasped the other arm with the same fierceness and tore that from the carcass, which began to look dismantled. Again the chair sent forth a sound strange and metallic. Patou remained insensible. He took up the chair by one leg and, swinging the whole round his head, brought it down on the floor. This split the seat in half, and to the great astonishment of the destroyer, out of the yawning chasm spouted torrents of gold. Our readers will remember that it was Angelique's habit to change all her coppers into silver and them into gold pieces, which she stowed away inside her chair. When Patou recovered from his surprise and dismay, his first impulse was to run out to Catherine and little Isidore and bring them into view the riches he had discovered. But the dreadful terror seized him that Catherine would not marry him if he were a rich man, and he shook his head. No, he said, she would refuse me. After reflecting for an instant, Careworn and motionless, a smile passed over his face. 
no doubt he had hit on a means of surmounting the obstacle which this sudden wealth had raised he gathered up the coins scattered on the floor and poked about in the cushion with his knife for still more of the golden eggs they were literally crammed into the lining he reckoned and there were fifteen hundred and fifty louis otherwise thirty-seven thousand two hundred livres or franc and at the discount in the favor of gold he was the master of one million three hundred and twenty-six thousand livres and at what a moment had this slice of good luck befallen him when he was obliged to smash up the furniture from having no means to buy fuel for his wife what a lucky thing that Petou was so poor the weather was so cold and the old chair so rotten who knows what would have happened but for this happy conjunction of circumstances he stuffed the coin away in all his pockets and scraping the splinters together he built a fire which he managed to kindle with the unused flint and steel he was no more than in time for in came catherine and little isidore shivering with cold petou gave the boy a hug kissed the woman's icy hands and dashed out crying get warm i have a piece of business to go through where does papa petou go asked the boy i do not know but judging by the gate he is going at it is for you or me she might have said for you and me end of chapter thirty one recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter thirty two of the countess of charny by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain what petou did with the find it has not been forgotten that the charny estate and the gilbert and belay farms were in the market at a price on the sale day mayor longpre bought for mr cash the properties at the price of one thousand three hundred and fifty gold louis for the equivalent of assignats this happened on sunday the eve of the day when catherine and petou were married at eleven on the following day all the crowd were grieving that a fine fellow like petou should throw himself away upon a girl who was ruined utterly with a child who was even more poverty-stricken than herself when mayor longpre had pronounced citizen pierre ange petou and citizeness anne catherine belay united in wedlock he beckoned little isidore to him the youngster had been sitting upon the desk whence he slipped down and came to him my boy he said here are some papers which you will please give your mamma catherine when papa petou takes her home yes sir said the little fellow taking two papers in his little hand all was finished only to the great astonishment of the spectators petou pulled out five gold pieces and handed them to the mayor saying for the poor of the parish are we rich asked catherine smiling happy folks are always rich returned petou and you have made me the happiest man in creation he offered his arm to the wife who leaned on it affectionately on going forth they found the crowd to which we have alluded unanimous cheers greeted the couple petou saluted his friends and gave many handshakes catherine nodded to hers and gave many smiles petou turned to the right Why? 
"'Where are you going, dearest?' asked Madame Pitou. "'Come, my dearly beloved,' he replied, "'to a place you will be glad to see again.' "'Why, you are going toward our old farm,' she said. "'Come on, all the same,' he persisted. "'Oh, Pitou!' she sighed as he brought her over the well-remembered way and i thought to make you happy he sighed too how could you think to make me happy by taking me again to a place which was my parents and which might have been mine but which was sold yesterday to some stranger whose name even i do not know only a couple of steps farther that is all i ask of you they turned the corner of the wall and had the farm entrance before them all the farmhands carters cowmen dairymaids ploughmen were there with father clovis marshalling them a bunch of flowers in his hand i understand you wanted me to be welcomed once more in the old home by those who like me will leave it forever i thank you dear leaving her husband's arm and isidore's hand she ran forward to meet the people who surrounded her and bore her into the house. Pitou led Isidore, who was still carrying the papers, into the doorway, and they saw Catherine seated in the main room, staring about her as in a dream. "'In heaven's name, tell me what they are saying,' she cried. "'I do not understand a bit of what they are saying.' "'Perhaps these papers which the child has for you will make it all clear, dear Catherine.' replied the husband. She took the papers from the little hand and read one by chance. I acknowledge that the manor house of Borson and the lands dependent were bought and paid for by me yesterday, on behalf of Jacques Philip Isidore, minor son of Catherine Belay, and that consequently said house and lands are the property of the said son, Longpre, mayor of Villers Cotterette what does this mean pitou you must understand that, that i cannot make head or tail of it better read the other document suggested the husband unfolding the second paper catherine read as follows i hereby acknowledge that the farm called pelais with the lands and buildings thereon and the appurtenances thereof were bought and paid for by me on behalf and for the account of citizeness Anne Catherine Belay, and that it follows the said farms and lands and buildings belong to the said citizeness Anne Catherine Belay, long pray, mayor of Belair Cotteret, in heaven's name, tell me what all this means, or I shall go mad, said Catherine. The meaning is, rejoined Pitou, that, thanks to some gold found in my aunt Angelique's old easy chair, which I broke up to warm you. The house and manor of Charny will not go out of the family, or the farm from the Belays. Catherine understood all at last. She opened her arms to Pitou, and he pushed Isidore into them, but she leaned forward and enfolded husband and child in the same embrace. "'Oh, God!' exclaimed Pitou, stifling with bliss and yet unable to repress one tear for the old maid. To think there are people who die of hunger and cold, 
like poor Aunt Angelique. Faith, said a stout teamster, nudging a rosy milkmaid for her to take particular heed of their new master and mistress. I do not think that pair is going to die in any such way. Let us turn from these truly happy ones in the peaceful country to the bereaved widow of Louis the Sixteenth. In her lonesome jail, she mourns over the loss of all. Husband, lover, friend. What can replace a Charny or an Andrea? She thinks there is no champion of the blood of either, for she knows not that Cagliostro's surmise was not baseless. When the son of Andrea shall know how his mother fell, he will fly to arms to avenge that loss and to spite her foes, who are also the queens. We shall trace his gallant and desperate attempts to rescue the royal captive in the pages of the conclusion of this series, entitled The Knight of Redcastle, or The Captivity of Marie Antoinette. The End End of chapter 32 End of the Marie Antoinette Romances, Volume 5 the Countess of Charny by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams, recording by John Vanstan, Savannah, Georgia. Thanks for listening.